So I'm sure that both of us, that all of us in this room, has probably attended some really good weddings. And we've probably attended, maybe just me, maybe we've attended a couple that were not so good. Um, but I personally don't have any horror stories from my own wedding, which is what um, I kind of thought might fit here. So I went to a wedding magazine, and I read a bunch of cool, horrible wedding stories. And I thought I'd share, I thought I'd share a few. Everyone has their panic story from their own wedding. Uh, but this one from a woman named Beth Ann um, said, A college friend of mine recorded her wedding for the TV show A Wedding Story, and the behind-the-scenes filming crew was an absolute nightmare. The church's altar was so crowded with production equipment, leaving little room for the clergy or the wedding party. The pastor opened the ceremony by stating that while he was there to marry the bride and groom, he would much rather be marrying off the television crew so they would go away. <laughs> Following the ceremony, the crew became the center of attention, blocking guests to capture footage of the bride and the groom and the bridal party. Post-reception antics were so were, were worse in the evening as the members of the production crew began pursuing the bridesmaids who were in attendance um, and who happened to be in attendance with her boyfriend. So a scuffle ensued between the production crew and the boyfriend of one of the bridesmaids. That sounds like an interesting bridal story. There's a few others that I'm going to read one or two more. Um, the plans on my wedding day, this is from, what is her name? Mindy. She's 29 and from Los Angeles. Um, the plans on my wedding day were to meet at the church at 2 and get my makeup done to prepare for a 5 p.m. wedding. Instead, at 9 a.m., my doorbell rang and there were 12 members of the groom's family expecting to be fed and entertained. And she said, I was very confused. But I didn't know that the custom of the country that my husband comes from is that everyone goes to the groom's house first thing to spend the day bonding and partying and caravanning to the church. Um, to the point where more and more people arrived and I had 40 people sitting in my backyard with only eight chairs. His, his family then rooted through my cupboards and cooked all the food for themselves and the guests cleared my pantry, refrigerator, and freezer. It's a good wedding, right? It's a good way to start off a familial connection. Um, this is the last one I'll read. It says, I was a bridesmaid in my friend's wedding, which took place in Kansas City in May, which is peak tornado season in the Midwest. The day of the wedding was ripe with storms and forecasters in our area um, had a tornado watch all day. There were sirens blaring and the bridal party had to take shelter in an underground cellar for nearly two hours. We lost power. There was no cell service. We couldn't find the groom and no one knew what was going on. Luckily, the tornado touched down outside of town, and we just had the wedding four hours late. <laughs> so that's not too bad, right? Just move it four hours late. There's a lot of things that can go wrong at a wedding. There's a lot of things. You plan for this. You, you think about it so hard. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong at a wedding. And there's no different in Jesus' day, right? Jesus was in attendance at this wedding of Cana with his mother, and tragically, they ran out of wine. But Jesus apparently didn't notice or didn't care. That wasn't who noticed first, right? We, all, we do see who noticed who ran out of wine first. It was his mama. His mama noticed first. The mother, she saw, they were out of wine. So she goes to Jesus and seems to be pleading with him, right? She begs him. Why don't you just do something? Can you do something? Could you please just do something? Um, 
Which is odd to me because at first when I read this, I'm like, it's just wine. Why can't they just, why can't they just drink the water? There's obviously a lot of water. Why won't they just go drink the water? Why is wine such a big deal? And then if you kind of read in the scripture a little bit, you realize that the water is for purification ritual, right? It's for purification ritual, which means this is not clean water. This is not clear water. This is what they did their hand and foot washing in. All right? So this is gray water. This is nasty water. This is not good water. No one wants to drink this water, right? It's toilet water, right? Like no one wants to drink this water. And they're in the desert. They're in the desert with nothing to drink, with nasty water. So she goes to Jesus. And as a side note, this always kind of gets me. When I read this part of scripture, this gets me because it shows me that Mary had to know something. Jesus had never done a miracle, a a recorded textual miracle. This is his first public miracle. But his mother, his mother had to have known, right? She had to have known what he was capable of. So if we think about our Christmas songs that we like to sing, Mary did you know, Mary knew y'all. Mary knew. Mary knew from the beginning. Something was, I digress from there, but Mary knew what was going on. She knew what Jesus could do. She had that relationship. She'd been with him the whole time. She knew. But back to her pleading. So she pleads and pleads, and and Jesus appears to do what looks to me to be very, very rude. It might just be me, but it looks very rude because his response to his mother's pleading was, woman, is that that not how anybody else reads that? It might be just me, but I read it as, woman, My hour has not yet come. That's what it looks like. Like, you know this. I'm not supposed to do this. And But I don't think, if you would kind of really dig into it, I don't think he was trying to be rude. What I think he was doing was telling his mother at that moment, kind of distancing himself from that familial relationship and saying, you're just like everybody else. At least that's what he might be telling himself. You're just like everybody else. And and I'm going, I'm walking into my ministry, and I need you to treat you like everybody else right in this minute. And so Mary says, okay, and she takes that information, and what does she do with it? She says, go straight to the servants and says, just do whatever that man tells you to do. Do whatever he says. And so seemingly five minutes after he just told his mom that his hour had not yet come and tries to distance their relationship, he decides that his hour has come. He changes his mind. His hour is now come, and he's going to turn that water into wine. He told his mother no. But he thought about it for a second, and then he did exactly what he knew his mother wanted. He does exactly what his mother wanted, and he turns that water into wine. But what I take from that is is that Jesus acted freely, but in some way that human need influenced his need to act, right? Like in some way what was going on in that situation moved him to move. It moved him to act. And I'm not sure how that works all the time in our current age. But what I do know to be truth is, is that if human need, if human need moved Jesus, then human need should move us too. If human need moved Jesus, it has to move us. When we see the hurting and the hungry and the dying people in our midst, it must move us to act. If we see racism and anger and bigotry in front of us, it must move us to say something. 
Because like I said, I'm not certain as to how how God always works in this world and this time. But I know that a lot of times if I want Jesus to move into a certain part of my world or our world, well then I must be the one that does the moving. I must be the one that does the moving. If I want Jesus to do something about poverty... Well, maybe then I need to go work with organizations that deal with the impoverished and help people that are in poverty. Because I'm not always sure how God answers prayer. But I know that I can be someone's answer to prayer. I remember I grew up uh, pretty poor. You've heard me talk about this before, but there were six of us and we were pretty poor. And oftentimes we didn't have the money to send us to, you know, school field trips or to send school supplies. I remember showing up the day of school numerous times without school supplies, having to skip the field trip and sit in the cafeteria. I remember being that kid and doing those things. And I remember being a young kid that prayed deep, deep prayers of provision. I just wanted, I wanted to go on the field trip. I wanted those things. I wanted all those things that other kids had. So nowadays, I can't go back and change that. But what I do is, you know, when Eden comes with a field trip school form, well, I pay double. And I send another little kid, you know, just make sure that one extra kid gets to go. And I take great pride in the fact of what we do with school supplies here for children. I take great joy in taking the extra school supplies that we didn't give out on that day to the intermediate school and the elementary school and the middle school and passing those out to principals. I take great joy and pride in that because I know that I can't have been the only kid who prayed prayers like that. That I'm not the only kid that needed those things. And that human need should always influence us to act. But I can't be the only one also that found it odd that this was Jesus' first miracle, right? Like, if needs move Jesus, then why didn't he pick a better one? I've always thought that. Why wasn't it lepers or the deaf or the feeding of the 5,000? Why did he choose the wedding of Cana to be the first miracle that we all see? Why didn't he do something better? We have to look at this symbolically when we read the text. Because even in the first line of the text, we see a foreshadowing. Because on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. On the third day, that's not just something that the writers write in there as an aside. They wanted us to know something. They wanted us to see something. So there was that foreshadowing of on the, on the third day, there was a wedding of Cana. The whole point of the wedding of Cana at the start of his ministry is that Jesus wanted to declare redemption. He wanted to declare redemption. That even before we get to the Last Supper, he is reminding us that Jesus is the source of wine and that he is the source of redemption. In a way that only Jesus can do. In this opulent way. In this way of abundance. He didn't make just one jug of wine. Anybody notice that? He didn't make one jug of wine. He turned it all into wine. And if we know by what we know about ancient calculations that if six stone jars, well that's about 30 gallons per jar. Well Jesus just made 180 gallons of wine. 180 gallons of of wine. More than any more than anyone could ever need or want is what he made for this wedding. Because when it comes to redemption, he didn't just make enough. He made enough for those who were there 
and he made enough for those who were coming to the table and he made enough for those who didn't even know they were invited to the wedding to remind us that grace makes no sense at all. Grace makes no sense at all, but it extends to all people for all time, for all humanity, and he made enough. Sometimes we have people that are trying to come to the table People that we don't think live a life that we approve of or people that we don't think are worthy of the table. And so we might hold the jar over to the side and shake it a little bit to feel if it's empty, right? We might shake it a little bit to see if there is enough in there. But in moments like that, when we're not sure we have enough for everyone and we don't know how far this grace extends to people that we don't think deserve it, We can look into the jars that have been given to us by God like the servants at the wedding of Cana and notice that the wine is full again. It's full again and again and again and again. There is more than enough wine at the table of the Lord. There is more than enough redemption for all because he made enough, because he is enough, because he will always be enough. Through this miracle, he is asking the people at the wedding of Cana and to us this morning to look to Jesus as the source. To look to Jesus as the source. But what's almost comical about it is though is that the chief steward of this story, he was brought the wine, but he didn't know where it had come from. He enjoyed the good things, the good wine, and even mentioned that the good wine is saved for last. When everyone else was already drunk, he recognized the good things. But in his drunkenness, he could not find the source. In his drunkenness, he could not find the source. Now, it may sound like I'm about to preach to you about your Friday night beer or your Saturday glass of wine, and that is not what I'm doing this morning or any morning. But what I want to address this morning is the drunkenness of the body of Christ is more often not that, but what it is is maybe when our lives get so busy. When our lives get so busy that we can't see time as a gift. That buzz of busyness for busyness sake, that'll intoxicate somebody real quick. Or maybe for you it's not that busyness, maybe maybe it's greed. Maybe it's greed that gets so big and so all-consuming that when you surround yourself with greed to the point where you can't see your resources as a gift, you can't see the things that you've been given as a gift. Often in our drunkenness of life and spirit, we forget where the good stuff comes from. We forget. Scripture tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And at the wedding of Cana, the source of all that was good was Jesus. The source of all that was good was Jesus. The grace we feel in this life comes from the God of great grace that dips down into the ritualistic hand-washing waters and changes them into deep and rich and meaningful blessings. The grace of God Well, that can be found in every hug from a small child, in every theological discussion you find in a Sunday school class, in every tear we shed in prayer, at every family dinner, and every time our feet dips into the sand at the beach. God's grace meets us there, 
God's grace meets us in the good things. I often use this prayer book um, in my life called Every Moment Holy. I don't know if any of you have ever uh, seen this one, but it's called Every Moment Holy. And it has prayers ranging from when you change a diaper uh, to frustration at work to seeing the ocean for the first time on vacation to buying a new home. It reminds me often that in the simple and in the ordinary that grace abounds. And that we shouldn't let the good stuff pass us by. But we should give thanks and hold tightly to goodness. So before we transition to communion, even though there's not much snow on the ground, I would like to read from you from my prayer book, Every Moment Holy, about the first snow of a new year. Um, Let's pretend like there is a lot of snow out there. But this is the liturgy for our first snow. O Christ, King of Snow... We bless you for bidding this blanket of white to cover us in holy hush, that our hearts might be quieted at the sight, that we might sense the emptiness of canvas over which your spirit broods and upon which you would create and recreate our hearts in the image of the one who first spoke snow into existence. And it's little prayers like that that remind me that remind me of the source and of goodness and of good things. Every good thing is God's, and he is responsible for the richness and the deepness in our lives. May we not let the stress and the busyness and worry of this world overwhelm us to the point where we can't see grace, to where we can't see Jesus. And we have included the Lord's Prayer in our communion liturgy today. And that means in a few moments, together, we will recite the Our Father together. Not out of duty or because it's rote or because we should, but because like the chief scribe, sometimes we need to be reminded of the source. My little prayer book is needed in my life, not because I'm unable to pray on my own. Not because I can't think of prayers, but because sometimes I just need a little something to remind me. I need something to remind me of goodness and remind me of where God is in the little times and in the big times. I need to be reminded of the source. So if you don't know it, if you could grab a bulletin today, you probably do. Um, But if we're going to recite the Our Father together, and I ask that you do that with a meditative spirit, with peace in your heart, And if you know this by memory, I want to tell you we are doing debts, not transgressions today. Okay? Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen and amen. As always, we want to remind you that we celebrate an open table. Wherever you are on your journey of faith, we welcome you to partake of grace today. We hold no one back from this table. 
baptized or unbaptized, you are welcome at the table of the Lord because it does not belong to us. It is God's. And as a reminder, we will start the line on this side, and then we will process that way. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it.